Hello and welcome to the Blue Tech Thought Leadership Interview Series. In this week's episode, we will speak to Giulio Baccaletti. Giulio is a scientist who has worked on climate dynamics and physical oceanography at Princeton University. He is also a NASA Earth System Science Fellow at Princeton University. More recently, he has worked for global consultancy, including McKinsey and Company, and led their sustainability and resource productivity practice, whilst also co-founding their water practice. Julio has written and published a book called Water Biography, and in this interview, we delve into Julio's journey towards this point in his career and the history of the relationship between society and water. Julio, welcome. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. Well, you've written a very important book, the biography that needed to be written, a biography of water. And looking forward to diving into the contents, the story, the narrative of that with you today. Um, but before I wanted to maybe just chart your own future, um, you were involved with probably the most seminal report that was ever written to my mind on water. It was called Charting Our Water Future, um, often referred to as the McKinsey Report, but many people were involved, the World Bank, various different corporate stakeholders, and I'd love to hear, you know, what, what your perspective is now, because it was, you know, charting our water future and it was published about, you know, 2009. What yeah. do you feel about that body of work now? Sure. Uh, well, that's a, it's a, in a way a good place to start because that was my sort of, uh, you know, my entering adulthood as far as water is concerned, you know, it was the first big uh, sort of effort. And, you know, it, it was seminal in the sense that it was the first very high profile attempt at bringing water out of the technical and into the sort of uh, managerial and political. So it wasn't necessarily uh, seminal from a purely technical perspective, but it certainly was important in communicating in a novel way the problems that the water community always knew it faced to an audience that you know normally doesn't think about this. Uh, and it was, it was quite an interesting experience. It was born out of... Um, kind of the frustration with the fact that this was the in the early 2000s people started sort of catching on to the problem of carbon mitigation mm -hmm. and uh, you know i had been a climate scientist for a decade before going into business and and um i knew that the sort of flip side of that coin was going to be climate adaptation but i couldn't get businesses or governments uh, when i was at mckinsey to engage on this question of well how do we prepare for a changing climate and then suddenly i hit on this uh, on this realization that if you translate climate issues in water terms, then suddenly it becomes very tangible to people and you can sort of engage. And I found that, you know, in the mid to late 2000s, businesses were really starting to ask questions about water and water issues and water scarcity. It was sort of bubbling up the risks of the World Economic Forum. People were starting talking about it. And in fact, the, the WEF had had a, a big sort of um, uh, an agenda council focused on water, which had tried to wrap its arms around how to articulate the problem of water. And so we came in and I came in with the team that I was leading at the time and, and simply articulated the problem in terms that were understandable to CEOs and ministers of finance, which is what's the problem. And the problem was articulated as a gap between, you know, between demand, future demand and the current ability to provide for it and, and, and relayed this 40% gap between the two, right? Between the future demand and the, and the supply by 2030. Uh, and then illustrated through the use of a marginal cost curve, uh, all the solutions that could be brought to solve that gap. How do we fill the gap? You know, what is it? And the big insights were that 
in fact, supply infrastructure was probably the minority of the answer, and that the cheapest and most effective way of solving that major gap was to essentially increase the productivity of water use across the economy, you know, through agricultural uh, productivity improvements and the likes. And so we sort of laid out a roadmap, which was both global and local in nature, and went all the way down to the watershed uh, of kind of the full suite of solutions that you could bring to bear to solve the fundamental water crisis, which is how to make sure that the economy has enough water of the right quality and quantity to achieve everything it, it, it wants to achieve. Um, how do I feel it's now been over 10 years since that, you know, 12 years now since that report came out? And I, I think I, it's a very mixed bag, right? Because on the one hand, I think it succeeded in framing the problem in a way that has persisted. A few years later, the UN announced that there was a gap, a 40% gap between supply and demand. Um, you know, and if you trace the sort of references all the way back, you kind of come back to that report, right? And so in terms of framing the narrative and the story, I think it was, it was quite successful. And I think it was successful in alerting um, all industrial sectors that they all had a role to play uh, in this problem, this wasn't just an issue that the water utilities could solve, or indeed, you know, the technical, you know, the the water uh, tech companies like yourself, uh, you know, it's not just that domain, but it's actually across the entire economy. But in the end, you could ask, well, has the gap gotten smaller? That's a, you know, that's you know, a very kind of well posed question. And the truth is that there's been very marginal improvements in. The management of water, I would say, you know, at the margins, there have been some improvements. For example, I remember a few years ago, a colleague of mine at, at the World Economic Forum told me that South Africa, which is one of our case studies, had in fact closed that gap, you know, by about three, four percent. But there again, South Africa had, um, you know, the day zero crisis in Cape Town, you know, during that time, right? So in a way, the realization of that. Uh, of that experience is what brought me to write this book, because what I what I realized was the problem wasn't wasn't facts, right? Was the design of the institutions that are meant to take those facts and then translate them into action. The problem mm -hmm. wasn't revealing, or it wasn't only revealing a map, a chart to the future, but was figuring out who does what when and with what resources in order to make it happen. And that turns out to be a much more complicated and in a way historically uh, laden issue. And, and that was the starting point actually for thinking about this book. Right, right. Well, I think it still stands up because you know, even 10 years on, if I want to look at something that looks at it at a global level, um, it's very hard to tackle the, the issue. So any, any attempt to do so naturally you know, is open to people saying, well, you could have looked at this or you could have looked at that. But nevertheless, it did explain in very simple terms the supply-demand gap. Yeah. And also what jumped out to me, and I think Indy was one of your case studies too at the time, and that some of these solutions were cost neutral. Yeah. When you improve irrigation efficiency, you just, it, it's really kind of a no regrets scenario. You, you, you make a big impact for, for a relatively modest and sometimes net positive investment when you look at the ROI on it. That's right. That's right. And now the, the interesting thing is then, you know, because pop, what happened after the report is that I started working in countries, including India. So, for example, in Karnataka, right? And, and what you quickly realize is that the institutional architecture um, in delivering those solutions matters a great deal. So, for example, it is true that uh, from beginning to end, investments in agricultural productivity 
are net, uh, you know, net zero, even maybe uh, NPV positive. They may actually create value uh, with respect to the use of water. But the problem is that the capital owners, the operators on the landscape, and the people that ultimately set the prices are not the same people. And so that value may not actually get allocated in the right places. And so there's no incentive for the investor to put the money because they don't actually have access to the benefits. And so, you know, it, it's true. And I, I think those insights are still true. But they also, when you try to apply them, they then reveal that, you know, managing water is a matter of um, institutional architecture, not just a matter of, um, of you know, arithmetics. Yeah, I think that's probably what we all realize when we're in our silos. We, we, we think, you know, our little silo has a great solution, but it's disconnected from other areas of opportunity, um, which is why things like microfinance are really interesting, like what Water.org is doing, because they can potentially address economic uh, shortcomings in the system. But you had one other little um, important part of your biography on your way to writing the book was you produced a water documentary. That's right. Yeah, H2O, the molecule that made us. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. PBS. Tell me a little bit about what drove you to do that and your experience in that project. Well, you know, one of the things, so then I, when I left McKinsey, you know, almost, uh, you know, um, several years after I, I published that report, um, I had come to the conclusion that part of the battle we had to fight was a storytelling battle. That, you know, the issue was action and getting institutions to mobilize. And the institutions are, you know, my institutions, I mean, you know, local communities, I mean, even not just banks, right? Or but, but kind of institutions at all levels of of, um, of society need stories and narratives to frame why they should do the things they do. And, you know, Paul, you've done a documentary yourself and you know this. It's sort of a very powerful, you know, way of trying to uh, get people to see a route to action, a story that, you know, they might be able to author themselves. And so I, I, I decided that I wanted to engage on this question of how do we tell the story uh, of uh, of water, of the complexity and of the challenges of water. Also because, uh, you know, you mentioned water.org, water.org, you know, I, I, I collaborated with Gary White a fair amount in the past. And I, you know, I think very highly of that institution. That institution, you know, is trying to solve a very specific problem, which is access to water for a particularly a particular band of the world's population that needs it, right? But that problem is embedded in a sort of bigger problem, which is the sustainability of water resources writ large, which includes yeah. them, but also includes, you know, North America and Europeans and so on. And so I wanted to, to tell a story that that would provide that sort of mosaic of of uh, of, of experiences, right? A bit like your story with technologists, but with sort of the experience of water water challenges around the world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was at the time working in a, in a conservation organization, the Nature Conservancy, and so I had access to uh, natural history documentary makers. And, uh, and so I started, you know, I essentially uh, started engaging a few of them that I knew, and, and we sort of, you know, got in the proverbial sort of uh, boiler room and started throwing around ideas. And eventually, this three our three-part series emerged, um, which was really a first attempt at telling, at telling this, this kind of complicated, multifaceted story of water, trying to give a picture of what, what is the problem with water and how do we think about the solution. Um, and then I you know, provided a little cameo by going to, uh, to Egypt. And, and, and that, you know, actually, I, I started working with them at the same time as I started conceiving the building blocks of this book. And so some of the work that I was doing for the book sort of made its way into the documentary. And um, it was very powerful. I, I, aside from an enjoyable experience, it was also a very different mode 
of storytelling. You know, visual storytelling is very, is very um, uh, emotive. You know, very sort of elemental, and so it was uh, is is really powerful experience. Yeah, well, you had fabulous stories to tell in that. You know, and I would encourage anyone to, if they can access it, to watch. It was broadcast on BBC recently as well. That's right. Um, but you had beautiful episodes from the um, the resurrection plant That's to right. your your pieces in Egypt, where the, the Nilometer, which you know is a good segue because you know that was one of the very first, I guess, civilizations we think about that arose, um, you know, around a very fixed point in time with social structures around it. So, when did we first begin to to use your face to stand still in a world of moving water? Yeah, well, that's you know that's the the sort of starting point for my story, and it's about ten thousand years ago. Um, the date is variable. There's no you know it's not a day, a date in time, obviously. But around ten thousand years ago, we have the sort of Neolithic revolution, right? And we we essentially we start seeing in the archaeological record communities that emerge that are sedentary, and then eventually that they are sedentary and uh, eventually agricultural. And it's a very particular moment in time. It's an odd moment in time because human beings had been around already for, you know, some 300,000 years. And so we're talking about the very last 5% of the story of our species on the planet. For most of our story, we were hunter-gatherers, nomads, tribal. We may have had complex social structure, but we've left very little trace of um, of our life uh, before sedentism, and then we become sedentary, and that's what we today would identify as, as the start of history for us. Right? I mean, it's civilizations and art and literature. There are exceptions, right? I mean, I think there are cultures that predate that moment. For example, the Aboriginal cultures of Australia. But uh, but for the most part, most of the institutions that most of us have experience of, their origins, their roots go back to that moment. And it's a, it's a funny moment in time because we decide to stand still, as I said. And a world, and a world in which what is moving a lot, because we're coming out of the last ice age, and we know again from the from the paleoclimatological record that the sea level really only stabilized in five around five thousand BCE. We know this, for example, from measurements in the Gulf uh, in Gulf of Persia, and so uh, we become we became uh, still when still water was streaming down. Uh, from glaciers where the landscape was still being heavily modified. And so the experience of those early communities in the Levant and in other parts of the world was one in which the water on the landscape was probably an incredibly overwhelming force, one that they had to reckon with. And that's the starting point for this question of how do we then band together to confront this this agent on the landscape? Well, it it sounds like, you know, you, you express it very well, if I could borrow a phrase from the book, because of water's force, individuals had limited power in controlling their own environment. So they felt a bit, it was, some, it was something that alone they were quite vulnerable. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, our grandparents or maybe their parents would have found completely ordinary. It's just that you and I and most of us have grown up in an age where that um, vulnerability is largely hidden because we live in, you know, uh, secure houses in cities that are mostly essentially covered in uh, cement where water has been managed by somebody through large infrastructure that sits far from where we live. But that's a very anomalous condition. For most of history, uh, people had this very visceral and very immediate experience of water 
as a very powerful agent uh, on the landscape. And I think one of the revelations is that this is one of the things that maybe caused us to coalesce together as a society, because alone as farmers, our lives could be disrupted, but we had to, as a society, learn how to exercise its own power, which was the beginning of that. And, you know, I know we can picture dams and conduits and channels that we have today, but what did it look like, you know, 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago? Well, it looked, uh, in some ways, you know, it didn't look all that much different. Scale-wise, it was smaller, but, you know, it's still the case that even, you know, the early Sumerians were prone to building levees or, uh, you know, building canals. And the same, in a way, goes for the Egyptians. It, it looked, one of the things that's interesting about looking at the history of water is that it, it looked, you know, there was far more diversity within those kind of broad uh, brushstrokes. There was far more diversity in ancient civilizations in dealing with water than there is today. Today is actually remarkably homogeneous. You go to Tokyo, to London, to Vancouver, or to LA, and your experience of water is pretty much the same. You don't wade a river on the way to work. You get water out of a tap that comes out of the wall, and you go into the bathroom to shower. You know, it's a, it's a very sort of homogeneous experience. You know, in antiquity, it wouldn't have been because it would have been tailored to the particular hydrology of the landscape. And so the experience of the Euphrates and the Tigris and the Sumerian and Syrian societies that developed there was quite different from the one that uh, from the ones that uh, developed, for example, in Egypt or in uh, along the along the Yellow River in China. But they they all have a similar property, which is that the natural distribution of water on the landscape, uh, which is you know, a reflection of the climate system, right? It rains on the planet in different places because the climate system functions that way, introduces specific scales to the problem. You know, a weather system is about a thousand kilometers in width. It is that that's true now as it was true 10,000 years ago. Rivers have certain lengths because the distances between where it rains and where it can reach the sea are set by the geography, not by any particular human construct. And in most cases, the experience of water is one that just geographically transcends the individual. It's very, very unlikely. It's not always true. I mean, there are some cases that where individuals have a lot of agency on their life, where their agency is sufficient to deal with most water experiences, and that was the case, by the way, in ancient Greece and 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 some parts of uh, uh, Italy, which is why, you know, I then talk about them a fair amount. But for the most part, particularly for the great river civilizations, the civilizations that developed along big rivers, their experience of water simply could not be managed. The agency of water on the landscape far exceeded the agency of any individual, and so it forced this question of, well, how do you how do you express the agency of a society rather than just of any individual? And that requires coordination, requires uh, mobilizing resources, requires having some people paid to build levees while others grow food. And, and so, you know, quite quickly you end up in a situation where the relationship with water contributes to shaping uh, the institution of society. I'm very careful in the book not to make a claim that one determines the other. It's not that water single-handedly determines the, you know, the route we travel by. You know, it's we have agency, but it certainly provides boundary conditions that uh, that contribute to shaping the the road we take. I think China in particular, because you know, people will often say that the rule. The right to rule in China was associated with your ability to govern water, that if you could control water, people felt, well, you'd pretty much earn the right to govern. But if the water became unruly, 
and there was disorder, then yeah, it was going to be. I don't know how good this guy is or this yeah. dynasty is, and you could almost see it, it correlating with power. That's right, and I think in part this is because you know, in fact, I think that the the character for power, one of the characters for power, is actually a combination of uh, levy and water, right? That's right. Um, and uh, I think that the you know, there's many reasons for this. One of them, which is an obvious one, is that the um, nature of the rivers that flow down the Himalayas is monsoonal. So the the water that flows down the Yangtze, for example, it responds to the East Asian uh, monsoon. And so vast amounts of quantities of water come down quite quickly and rush down. Um, and these rivers create uh, large uh, natural levee systems and embankments and are quite destructive. And so if you are trying to grow society and grow food on the on the plains of these rivers, sooner or later, you'll find yourself in this problem of having to manage these rivers. And what happened in China was that, you know, at some point, for accidental reasons, I would say, a particular philosophy won out in dealing with the power of rivers, one of of essentially muscling your way to yeah. managing these rivers, essentially constraining them, completely controlling them, right? So it was river control rather than learning how to live with, you know, the force of the river. And that locked Chinese society in a very dangerous Faustian bargain because, you know, they had to build very powerful levees in order to contain the river. But by containing the rivers, they forced it to flow faster and deeper, which then meant that the subsequent floods would be more dangerous, which meant that they had to build even greater levees. And that would have led to, you know, a kind of continuous cycle of escalation, if you will. Um, and and so that the, the sort of... Um, the, the risk associated with catastrophic failure of infrastructure became so great as to jeopardize the very uh, legitimacy of the state, right? And that is the story, uh, the story of, um, of China. Um, and it's a fascinating story. In some ways, it is still true to this day. I mean, the, it's in the, the, that desire to demonstrate control of nature is, in fact, behind the construction of Three Gorges Dam, which is the largest uh, dam on the planet. The stakes got higher and higher. The more they committed to this one route, then That's right. yeah, yeah, it became devastating if if anything went wrong with it. And yeah, you think it's a Confucian approach. And I think there was at one point in time where the more, a more Taoist philosophy could have been adopted too, but but one one out. And um, I think it's one out across the world, as you said. We're quite homogenous in how we go about managing That's water. Right. That's right. Although I should add, Paul, that you know, in this debate between. Um, Water control and water management is one that's very alive in the sort of practitioner world, right? So, um, for example, in America itself, in North America, until the great flood of the Mississippi of 1927, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, which is essentially the plumber in chief of the American landscape, uh, you know, would have argued for uh, complete river control, right? And I think uh, since then, the Army Corps and other institutions that manage water in the United States have become much more susceptible to thinking about river management and the question of how do you allow the river to expand and how do you make room for the river, right? And so there's this idea that you actually manage uh, manage rivers in a more adaptive way. But overall, I think you're right. Overall, we've sort of, you know, seen from the moon and looking down on the planet, we've pretty much embraced this kind of infrastructure-heavy, uh, you know, um, control approach to our hydrology. You know, what I was trying to do wasn't necessarily telling a story of water for its own sake. I was trying to 
reconstruct the roots of the institutions that we see dominating today. And yeah. so I was quite selective in going backwards in time, not because those stories are not interesting, but because they're not really the ones that shape the institutions that are dominant uh, today. And like these institutions that are dominant today, like the institutions that come up with the idea of building dams, straightening rivers, making move water fast, I think that they're, as you said, maybe they're revising their thinking. You, you have a fabulous also statement in the book, changes in the climate system will eventually shatter the illusion of any final emancipation from nature. So like that idea that we're emancipated from it, you know, was a Victorian idea. Do you think that's shattered now? And how are people going to need to respond? Um, it was Victorian, and then it particularly it was progressive. It was the progressive era of the United States that really kind of put a nail in the coffin, right? I mean, it essentially was the promise of the modern state uh, that in exchange for high levels of taxation and high levels of uh, regulatory interference, you would uh, you would delegate the problem of delivering security. And, and the first security, particularly for agrarian societies, Remember, in 1900, still 40% of the United States lived on the land, right, on the in agricultural land. Uh, the, the first form of security is security from the variability of nature. Uh, and so, indeed, for the, most of the 20th century, we've lived under this illusion that this has, um, has worked. And, by the way, the, the illusion that the solution that was developed, the big dams, the canals, etc., are the answer to a question. Right? They are the answer, the technical answer to the question of how do we run a society that can essentially run at the rhythm and beat of industrialization so that we get up in the morning, we go out of bed, we, we can do that nine to five every day from Monday to Saturday without any interruption because it rains or because it's right. It's a very different calendar and a very different rhythm yeah, yeah. from an agricultural society, right? So that and was the you question. And you go to the supermarket and you get fresh fruit 12 so, Correct, seven. exactly, right? So, so the, the important thing to realize is that this is not a discussion about a technical solution that might go wrong. It's about a vision of an economy that might not work, right? So now we have climate change. Climate change changes the signal that had... Uh, against which all of this infrastructure had been calibrated. So the 20th century, we lit the world with dams, with canals, with infrastructure, with technology, essentially to turn a variable signal, a variable signal in time and space, into a uh, reliable and constant signal uh, at our tap. Right? That's, that's what that infrastructure did. Now, the variability is changing, and it will, in many cases, exceed the capacity of what we've built. And we've seen this recently. I mean, when IDA came through... New York, you know, the subway flooded. Now, that subway wasn't designed to be flooded. It wasn't expected that it would flood. Um, it's just a symptom of the fact that the, uh, the phenomena that the climate system is providing are now exceeding the statistics on which those solutions were built, right? And so that's the sort of big motivation, if you will, for this book is to say, careful, folks, the problems are coming. And where those problems show up is not just in the failure of infrastructure. This is not just about, oh, well, we'll just build, therefore, another piece of infrastructure. Because the thing is, the infrastructure we built was underwritten by a rapidly grown economy at a very different time. And so what are the economic implications of the failure of that, you know, that particular 20th century solution? What, what will happen when we suddenly find ourselves with cities repeatedly flooded with cities that are no longer able to provide, for example, the fresh fruit and vegetables that we've become accustomed to? What, and what will happen when, you know, uh, food systems, cereal systems fail? Now, for the rich part of the world, you know, that problem may be manageable, at least in the immediate future. Certainly not if we get into 
very, very significant climate changes, but in the immediate future it will. But the most vulnerable parts of the world, which are already quite exposed to uh, climate variability, uh, will fall off a cliff, right? And then you'll have things like migrations, you have disruptions to social mm -hmm. order, and those things then have a funny way of propagating uh, across the world. And so one of the points I make is that the, you know, the problems that come from climate change will not travel along the rivers and along the waterways of the world. They'll travel through the human institutions and through societies. In fact, we might find that the biggest product of water insecurity is a flood of people rather than a flood of, uh, of water. Yeah, well, so no one's isolated from it. It's not that although the, the, the less well-developed or the less well-off people may be bearing the brunt of the impact where it might be more manageable, the wealthier nations, but nevertheless, I guess we had some glimpses into that with the refugees from Syria landing on the beaches of Greece, which, you know, some people would argue you could trace back to shifts in agricultural yield, which led to other in politi political instabilities as well in the region. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, you know, th these problems are overdetermined. I mean, in some ways, you know, Assad you know, should be blamed for what's happened in Syria, obviously. But the the strains on the agricultural system, the strains on the uh, on the food system. This wasn't just about local scarcity. This was also about, uh, you know, the food price uh, spikes that happened over the course of all those years. The, so it's it's about the sort of, you know, the, the vulnerability, the most vulnerable are going to be the ones that show us what the consequences of a changing climate uh, will be. And one of the advantages of looking at 10,000 years of history is that you know, the fact of the matter is this has happened over and over and over again. I mean, this is not new. We shouldn't be surprised. You know, this is how human systems, even very unequal human systems, end up responding. So what should we do? Like, is that the subject of the next book? You've, you've identified a pretty major fundamental challenge here that um, isn't going to work. What, what, do you, what do you see? Well, uh, you know, I think um, it's a very good question. And, uh, and you know, because you can say, so what, right? I mean, so, uh, you know, 400 pages later, we're now convinced that we have a problem. What, uh, you know, what do we do about it? I think that part of the motivation for framing this in political language and political terms was that I, I, I have this concern that we've, we've framed all of these issues as fundamentally science-led technology issues. And so there's an, some expectation that the answer to these problems is, well, the scientists will tell us what to do, and then we'll just develop the technologies and do it. And of course, there's a sense in which that's true. We will need science to know what might happen, and we will need technologies to solve these problems in some way. But the reality is somebody will have to pay for the technologies. The land on which this technology will have to be placed will have to be used for that. And so there are fundamentally political questions that are underlying all of these issues. And my observation is that politics today doesn't really have the language to talk about these things. If you ask yourself, you know, do political programs, for example, reflect the sophistication of the issues that we face? Um, they don't, right? I mean, arguably, at the beginning of the 20th century, for better or for worse, there was an articulation of what the future of, the, of a country like the United States could look like that incorporated a very precise vision of the landscape and the water in it. FDR was elected four times. If you read his programs, he had a vision for what he would do with the rivers of the country, what he would do with the landscape, you know, the conservation cause that he would start, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Whereas today we are such an urbanized society that most politicians don't really incorporate 
uh, in the language of politics, these issues. It's more a question of saying, well, we'll have to spend money on engineering and technology. And I think, in fact, these are deeply value-based issues. They're about what do we care about? You know, what do we want our home to look like? For example, the West of the United States is undergoing right now a crisis. It's been in a, you know, it's actually, its climate has essentially shifted. So I don't know that it's a, any longer useful to talk about a drought. I think it's actually entered a slightly different climate regime. And uh, the question that it faces is not just, well, should we build desalination plants? The question it faces is, what does the landscape look like? Should it look green? The, you know, should our cities look green? Where should we put our cities? Should you know, should we have millions of people living in San Diego when, in fact, it's uh, you know, underlying capacity for supporting people is maybe a few thousand? You know, and maybe the answer is yes. But what are the consequences of that? Right? I think there's a much more sort of values-based uh, policy discussion uh, that's required because the choices that we have are going to be very big, and so they require legitimacy. And to have legitimacy, they have to involve people. People need to have be, maybe be able to debate them. And so that, to me, is where we go next. Yeah, well, you know, similar to you, I, re I recognize that storytelling was important to get this across to people. That was one of the drivers for Brave Blue World and, and your project, um, H2O, Molecule That Made Us. Because ultimately, politicians need to get involved. But politicians respond to people. Um, but it, I don't know if you watched the film, uh, Don't Look Up, yes? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean... It just really drives home in a, in a, it's a satirical parody, but, but that short-termism that goes with the current political system. I mean, maybe FDR got elected four times. What's that, 16 years or something? Yeah, well, he, yeah. almost 16. He died before the end of his last mandate. But, yeah. um, but yes, you're right. But the thing that's interesting about the Don't Look Up story is that in a way it avoids the more problematic issue, which is that this is not a meteorite that will hit everybody in the same way, right? It's the distribution of impacts is gonna be highly, highly unequal. Dubai exists. If you have enough money, you can solve most problems, at least in the short term. So the big issue is not that there's a meteorite hitting us, is that some people will feel the consequences of that meteorite while others can blindly go on. And so that is what creates the political tension that you need institutions to resolve, right? Um, and so that's why it's fundamentally political, uh, political problem. Yeah, and you've got to make it accessible. You've got to communicate it in a way that politicians understand. And I think that's one of the key uh, roles that I think your work plays. And indeed, all the speaking you're doing around the book, the communication. Um, I know you'll be doing more work around World Water Week and hopefully at the United Nations Water Summit in March 2023 as well. Yeah. You know, and I think, yeah, there, there's something to be said by being able to look back in history and look at what did they do in Iran with the Quanats? What did they do with the Amonas in Peru? What did they do in, in Petra? And, and contextualize it for today in that it, um, it may be not a one size fits all, but, um, but the, the one size that we have chosen to fit no longer fits. That's yeah. probably the key thing you can say. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Well, so thank you, Julia, very much. We look forward to uh, continuing to track the progress of the book and the influence you're having. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.